Amen. Good morning. How are you? Good. Moms, happy Mother's Day. Chris, let me borrow you. We put this like right there, please. Thanks. Post surgery, I'm not supposed to be listening, lifting. No, no, up, 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 up. Come on, dude, put that gym muscle to work. Not just so you can show off, homie. Come on. All right. Revelation chapter 15. For all you moms, happy Mother's Day today. If you showed up here hoping for something out of Proverbs 31, you're going to be deeply disappointed. Wow. That was a horrible sound. Okay, good. All right. We're working our way through the book of Revelation. As we have been teaching through it, we began last year, had this emergency surgery at the beginning of the year, which interrupted our teaching series. So we paused, picked back up, and have been going strong. We should finish Revelation in the next month. I know that surprised Alex when I told him that earlier this week. So Revelation chapter 15. So we've been looking at and using the kind of the, uh, if you will, key to Revelation being that what we need to know to understand it. John gives us that in chapter 1, I think it's verse 3, basically where he says that we need the Word of God, and his, in his context right there would be probably the Old Testament, the testimony of Jesus, that'd be the teachings of Jesus, might even include the whole New Testament, so we can think of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, and then the visions that John sees. He says, with those three things together, you can understand this. And so we've been pairing Old Testament teaching, the imagery that is used in the, in the book of Revelation. We've been partnering that together with the Old Testament passages that explain it. It's been very helpful as we work our way through it. So today, we're going to see a little bit of an Old Testament story being played out and some of the teachings of Jesus being played out in these two short chapters. So here is a main idea for the day that we'll put up on the screen God is just and holy in judgment. I find that we struggle to understand eternal judgment as just and to reconcile it with a loving God. Like a judge sentences the convicted, God must judge Satan and all who worship him instead of Christ. And I think sometimes we struggle, especially maybe after last week's message, where it gives a very clear view of hell as it speaks of eternal judgment. And last week, as we talked about that, we talked about that the Scripture gives us these teachings. It teaches us about eternity, not so that we can use it as a weapon against others, but so that it can motivate us to our mission to love others for the sake of the gospel, right? That that understanding of what all hangs in the balance here is important for you and I to, to motivate us to love others and to share our faith. But when we think about that, sometimes we struggle with the justness, or how do we reconcile a loving God with this idea of eternal punishment? So what we see in the passage today is exactly that, as God is proclaimed to be just and holy. So Revelation 15, starting in verse 1, if you guys need a Bible, there's one on the seat in front of you. I can even give you the, the, the cheat. It's page 1036. You're welcome. Verse 1, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So a couple things to get us set up today, right? So an, again, another sign in heaven, so that moves us up to what we've been calling the upper story, right? 
We've been talking about Revelation showing us these different views, and in some cases, you have the upper story, the perspective from heaven, what it looks like from a divine perspective or kind of an overarching view from God's perspective. And then sometimes we have the lower story, that's the, what you and I experience here on earth. And as John writes this to seven churches, real churches enduring real things, he writes it to them, for them, for their lifetimes. And that will be true that it will be for all of us in our lifetimes for as long as this book continues to be and Jesus doesn't return. If Jesus returns, that wraps it all up, right? And so it's written to them for them, real time, but we get to apply it to ourselves as well. And so we remind ourselves of the upper story, lower story, remind ourselves of the perspective. Now today we're going to see kind of another Another version of something we've looked at. We looked at the seven seals on the scroll, kind of represents redemptive history that begins with the gospel and plays out until the end of time. We saw the seven trumpets. This is a lot like the seven trumpets, that it kind of mirrors that, but there is a twist today. There is a a nuance to the seven bowls of wrath or the seven plagues. First called seven plagues because they mirror a lot of the exodus, the plagues in Egypt that eventually ultimately delivered Israel out of slavery. So another sign in heaven takes us up to an upper story view, and then he says this, these are the last, for the wrath of God is finished. And so these are the final ones. And so each time we see these repeating stories, there's a nuance that's different about each one. We've talked about this being discursive learning, these kind of views of things that are not chronological, that help us understand different perspectives. It's Mother's Day today, so for all of you that are mothers, happy Mother's Day. Let me use that as an example. So you are more than just mothers, right? You are women, you're mothers, if you're you're a mom, that counts, right? You're probably a daughter of someone, right? Hopefully, I would assume you're a daughter of someone, right? That was a really dumb sentence. Bear with me. Not in my notes. You can see when I abandon my notes, right? probably married, maybe a brother or sister, maybe a teacher or a doctor or something. There's a lot of aspects to who you are, right? We just celebrate one part of that today with Mother's Day as we take pictures and kind of celebrate the family together. But it's like that. These are snapshots, windows in to the same thing. Like you have more than one thing that defines you. There's more than one thing that defines me. We get these different looks. But this one is the final look. And John makes that very clear. Verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image, and the number of its name standing beside, and that word beside would be better translated upon, standing upon the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. The Greek word there, api, can be beside, can be upon. Some translations have gone with beside, Others with a pawn, I would choose a pawn in this case. Here's why. The sea of glass that we saw as this chasm between us and the throne of God, when we saw that back in chapter 4, the sea is always this image in Hebrew literature of chaos, of struggle. You see the world before God forms it into what we know as the world today, as this kind of utter chaos of water. And so it always carries with it that image. Think of Jonah being thrown into the ocean, thrown into the chaos, right? We always see that language. 
But then what we see is this chaos or this sea mingled with fire, which is always talking about judgment or trial or suffering or persecution maybe. It's always that struggle. And so we see this kind of chaotic life with struggle and persecution. What we see are those who believe in God. I'm getting that look, huh? Kids, if you're still in here, don't know why they trust me with these things. I don't know why. Kids, if you're going to class, you're free to go to class. Sorry. You can stay in here. We would encourage you to stay with your families. We love having you in here. And I uh, really don't know why they trust me with important things like that. So, sea of glass, big old with fire. And what we see are those saints, those believers, the people, the church, if you will, on earth. We see them standing upon that. And I, and I parse it out that way rather than beside because I want you to see the setting for today. So here's the setting. We've got an upper story view. We're going to look from God's perspective. We're going to see believers still on earth in this chaotic life amidst persecution and struggle. And that's where this is going to take place. We're going to see these seven plagues, which are also going to be called seven bowls of wrath in just a minute. Right? And we're going to see them poured out on the earth and God says, this is the final judgment. This is the final time that this happens on earth. So keep those in your head today as we look at this. Verse 3, and they, this is the people upon the water mingled with fire, says, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, and I'm going to pause right there for a minute. So I assume most of you understand what the exodus from Egypt is, but just in case, let's back up for a bit. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. We're going to look at kind of this main story that takes place in the second book of the Bible. As the people of God move into Egypt at the end of Genesis, what happens is they flourish there. They grow. They become roughly 1.5 million people. They go in a family, and after hundreds of years, they end up being about a million and a half people. In the midst of that growth period, they go in, remember, because Joseph was in Egypt and saved Egypt from famine and from struggle. And because of that, the Pharaoh at the time invited his family in, and they lived there, and they flourished there. Well, hundreds of years, many generations, and the people forgot the importance of Joseph's family, if you will. And so Israel, or the Hebrew people, are growing in Egypt, and all of a sudden, kind of one of the Pharaohs begins to enslave them and to repress them, and the idea is they're growing a lot. And because of that, we want to repress them because they fear them. They don't want them to overtake Egypt. And so out of fear and jealously, they enslave them. And the, then the people of God begin to cry out to God, and God delivers them. But in between that crying out to God, like Exodus 1, 2, 3, and when they eventually are delivered in the mid-teens, of the chapters, what happens is Pharaoh says no. And God sends Moses in, and Moses does these, these signs, these things to show that he is from God, and yet Pharaoh's heart is hardened, sometimes by himself, sometimes even God hardens his heart. And he does so, and then he does, has these 10 plagues that strike Egypt, everything from frogs coming out and kind of consuming flies, all over the place, they can't control, the Nile Sea is turned to blood, the people get boils, but here's what's important. It's not the people of Israel that experience this. The land in Goshen where they are doesn't have this, but the Egyptians do, right? And this is plagues on Egypt, 
until finally the story of Passover, where the people slaughter a lamb and they paint their doors. It's a foreshadowing of Christ to come. But what happens is the firstborn in every household in Egypt dies. So just think through this. You're looking through like the firstborn son and and in their case, the firstborn of herds and, and people and servants and all this stuff, but Israel is untouched. And it's that, it's that the tipping point that causes Pharaoh to release Israel. And when they're released, they start to move out into the wilderness, and then Pharaoh kind of doubles back, and he chases them up to the edge of the sea, where God takes them through on dry ground and then kills the Egyptian army behind them. So with that in our rearview mirror, like with that understanding, again, Revelation is built out of Old Testament imagery. And I noticed a couple years ago, we went through the Bible together in a year. Some of us did that. And uh, what I noticed was that that is the number one most retold story throughout Scripture. As we read through the Psalms and, and other stories, it's remembering this story of deliverance. You see, the Exodus was delivering people from the evil and wickedness of slavery. But it foreshadows what Christ does in the lives of believers, that he delivers us from the slavery to sin, that Christ is the truer and greater Exodus. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I want you to see this. Here's it says, they sing the song of Moses. Now, when they get out and they cross the Red Sea in Exodus 15, they actually have this worship song they sing together. It's been named or titled the Song of Moses. Here we're told they sing the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb or the Song of Jesus. They're tying these two things together, this deliverance from Egypt out of the wickedness of slavery and the oppression of Egypt to the life of the church on earth that's been impressed, oppressed and enslaved and in ways spiritually delivered, and now will be physically delivered. And so these two are tied together. And ultimately, the exodus finds its fulfillment in Christ himself. Let's restart at verse 3. And they, that's the believers, standing on the chaotic, persecuted world. It says, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. See, the gospel story is embedded here. The Exodus gives birth to this narrative that we understand more fully in the gospel. That there's a God who created us and loves us, designed us, made us gave us the purpose of being worshipers. When I say worshipers, again, we say this each week, I don't mean when we stand and sing songs, though that is a part of worship, but that our lives are intended to give glory to God, that all that we do is to point people forward and to point our lives forward and give worth and value and glory and worship to God. We all know that sin comes in and, and wrecks all of that, that first with Adam in the garden and, and on forward to us and that we sin and that we choose to go our own way, even knowing right. In fact, if you're a guest here, I'll say this. Here at Generations, we're pretty clear on how flawed and broken we are. So we're not a church that thinks we have it all together. In fact, we're pretty sure we don't. We're pretty sure we're going to do wrong things, and, and we're going to fall short of what God has called us to. 
regularly. But we understand ourselves in the narrative of the gospel that, that though we fall short and that though we could never achieve what God has called us to on our own, that we could never even reach out to God on our own, we know that within that, God comes down to us and that God becomes human flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, that, that Jesus enters into human history and he lives the life that you and I are called to live but choose not to live. And then he dies a death in our place. And that when we find ourselves in Christ, we are, we are brought through, if you will, an exodus. We get to leave the confinement of sin. We get to leave spiritual deadness and we enter into spiritual life. That in Christ, especially in his death and resurrection, we are given new lives, we're forgiven, and then we're made new. That we are delivered. That baptism reminds us of that Red Sea where Israel gets there and they get to the edge of this and God delivers them and then crushes the evil in the Egyptian army behind them. That in baptism that we are made new, that we are empowered by God to live for him, that we are given the beginning of our exodus. And we kind of live in that space because right after the exodus, right after the Red Sea, the people of God spend about 40 years in the wilderness before they enter into the promised land, the land that God had given them, the land that God had created for them, the land that was to be theirs. Just like us, we too live in this wilderness, this chaotic sea mingled with fire, Right, This world that we're really not a part of, we're, we're meant for that, but we're here. And that's where the story begins today. 1 Corinthians says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. See, Scripture tells a cohesive narrative, a cohesive story from beginning to end. It is one of the kind of great proofs that it is the Word of God that you can take 66 books written by, I think it's like 40 authors over the span of a couple thousand years, and it can tell one cohesive story. Amen. I couldn't write that many books myself and make sense out of them, <laughs> right? Somehow, I contradict myself and and yet God has provided this for us. So here's a note for you. Christ is the greater exodus. Jesus delivers us from the slavery to sin, causing our deliverance through, not out of, through tribulation and suffering until one day, till we one day rest in him eternally. So in Revelation now, we're at that point. We're at the one day moment. We're right there. It's not quite here yet, but we're not back here. We're coming out of this and that's where Revelation is picking up today. Verse 5. John says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary, the tent of witness in heaven, was opened. And out of the sanctuary kept seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave them, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So these seven plagues are going to be seven bowls of wrath, right? We've seen the seven seals, right? One through six kind of portrayed from the gospel till the end of the world, kind of told a story of all of human history there. Then the seventh seal actually brought us seven trumpets. 
And we got different judgments, and we saw the martyred saints' prayers, and we saw these different moments, right? And now we have these seven plagues with these seven bowls of wrath. And what this is going to be are the final way that Revelation is portraying this overview. Now listen, I want you to hear this, this setting today. No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished, right? That no one can enter into God's presence fully until this takes place. We've talked about this a couple times. We, we think of death, rightfully, we think of death as a negative, right? We think of that, and, and when we lose a loved one or when we die ourselves, we're, there's some negative there. And there's another facet to that, that this flawed, sinful human body, the body that needed surgery at the beginning of the year, the body that gets sick, or the body that has pains, or the body that whatever, this body must die for us to gain our forever body, our eternal body. A body that won't get sick or die, and, and this has to go away. And we've said the same thing about the world we live in. That this world has to go away so that we can inhabit this world eternally without sin. And so we're at that moment now where the church is there on the sea mingled with fire, that we're here, and, 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 and what we've heard now is that we're getting to that moment where God is about to judge and finish and get us to forever. So here's a note for you. Christ's people don't fear God's wrath. Evil must be purged completely so that all who are in Christ may enter God's presence bodily. The church welcomes the end praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. It always amazes me, and I know there are different schools of thought on how to teach through Revelation, and there are different positions about what it means and what takes place between now and, and, and what's next, and, and that's fine. But none of it, I don't care where you land on the spectrum of understanding, none of it should cause fear. Right? None of it, sh we should not be worried. If you're in Christ, you should not have any concern or fear about what comes next. So are they creating a one world government in Europe? Should not keep you up at night. Right? Is this the mark of the beast? Well, you're not going to worship Satan, so don't worry about it. Like it should not cause fear. If you are in Christ, you are secure in Christ. And that Jesus, our true and greater exodus, will carry us through. That we have nothing to fear. In fact, I would, I would welcome that come Lord Jesus, come prayer. Like come, Jesus, we're ready. Unless there is something that refrains us from saying that, whether that's us desiring to get our life right with Jesus, or, or maybe even sharing our faith with others that we love, right? That we would share our faith and see them know Jesus as well. Otherwise, it's come, Lord Jesus, come. And either way, there's no fear. Revelation chapter 16, verse 1 says this, Then I heard with a loud voice from the temple telling, The seven angels go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. All right, who, who gets these painful boils? Everybody? Oh. Not Egyptians, but yes, that's the, that's the image, right? Right, the persecutors, the oppressors, those who worship Satan. 
Right? Remember, we back up to Revelation 13. Even in 12, where we see the dragon chasing, pursuing the church, the dragon being Satan as it defines itself. This is the dragon, the serpent from Genesis, Satan himself, right? And then we see in Revelation 13, the two beasts, and we talked about one being authoritative and, and forceful government and the other being false religion and false witness, and, and we're going to see that again today. And what that looks like is trying to deceive the nations either or trying to push them away either by force or by deception, right? By power and rule or by lies and deception. And so those that do that, those that take that mark, and, and again, we've talked about this. We talked last two weeks. We saw those that are in Christ sealed or marked. It's not a literal physical mark. And we talked about the mark of the beast not being a literal or physical mark. It doesn't need to be. It's about where our worship is. And if you worship government, as it talked about in 13, you truly are worshiping Satan. If you worship a false religion, you are truly worshiping Satan. You're either Jesus, you're worshiping Jesus, or you're not. There's two camps. And Revelation makes that very clear. Either you're worshiping the one true God, or you worship evil itself. You can be an atheist and say you worship nothing. I would make the case that you are worshiping yourself which is satanic in nature. And so it says this, now these plagues, here's what's different. So we've seen seven seals, we've seen seven trumpets, now we get the seven bowls of wrath. The seven bowls of wrath are poured out on those who don't worship Jesus only. Up until this point, it's been suffering, tribulation, struggle on earth that we all endure. And the seven trumpets, a third of this, a third of that, a third of this, and again, it was that idea of partial judgment. This idea of, partial penalty. So it hits some and maybe not others. And that's helpful for us here in America where we don't endure a ton of suffering for the gospel. As we recognize that this temporary space between Christ's ascension and his return doesn't affect everyone the same way at all the same times. Back up a thousand years, it looks different. If we live this long, or not live this long, if the world remains, Jesus doesn't return for another thousand years, it'll look a little different. Who knows what'll be happening here? But the idea here is this final seven bowls of wrath is poured out only on those who are not in Christ. Verse three, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing that died, died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became like blood. So these second and third bowls look a lot like the second and third trumpets, right, poured out on both fresh and salt water. And there's more imagery there. Obviously, there was all the living things in the sea, and we need fresh water for life. There's, there's a lot to it, but, but hear this. The, the bowls of wrath are being played out on earth. The final wrath of God is starting to play out on earth right now. And we begin hearing, we're still here, there's still a struggle here, and we can't enter here fully until this takes place, until this final wrath of God is meted out on all who do not worship Jesus. Verse 5, and I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Right? Just are you, O holy one who is and who was. There's two things here. Who is and who was normally is followed by and who is to come. But it's not because this is the coming. This is it, right? Who is and who was is presently now moving into what will be. 
But it also says this, this proclamation of an angel says, just are you a holy one. God, you are just in bringing these judgments. Again, we can end last week's message where the passage ends in a very stark and very clear view of eternal separation from God and, 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 and a view of hell. And, and we can find ourselves there and, and, and asking questions about, okay, I don't comprehend how a lifetime of whatever equals this. And, and we ask questions, it's okay to ask questions. It is fair to ask questions of Scripture. I would say I would encourage you to ask questions of Scripture. Scripture is clearly strong enough to stand up for your questions. God is clearly enough to tackle the disconnect between you and an infinite God, a, a finite human being with flawed reasoning and understanding and limit to an eternal and holy God, right? And that's okay. God has told us to worship him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? We can do that. But then we, be, we need to look for the answers, and here we get an angelic being who's overseeing this who has no flaws, who has no sin, who has no bias coming to the story, if you will, who's saying, God, you are just for what you're doing here. Like what you're doing is right and holy. Verse 6, it says, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. For you, you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Here's the reason we're told, they've shed the blood of your saints and prophets. Saints, that's us, right? Saints are not dead people that, you know, had a miracle, been venerated by a pope, and, and, and now are something different, right? When it writes to the saints in Ephesus, he's writing to the church in Ephesus, living people, right? You, if you are in Christ, you are called saints by Scripture. One of the, one of the damaging things Christians do are like, oh, I'm just a sinner. No, 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 no. In Christ, you're a saint who sins. You're not a sinner by definition because Christ has changed that. But see, those outside of Christ end up persecuting those who are Christ. And that's the story. That's the people of God on the chaotic life mingled with fire, on the glassy sea mingled with fire that we endure. Our struggle here in America is that we don't really endure a lot. And so we shape a theology around our experience and think there must be this to come, and it may be. But you've got to understand, if it's true here for us, it has to be true on the other side of the planet, too. And so those who are giving their life daily for their faith, it has to be the same book, the same revelation, the same story, the same, same meaning, the same purpose for them as it is for us. And I would be willing to bet if you were struggling right now in the underground church in China, you would read Revelation a lot like we're reading it as we are the people in the chaos of life under persecution. It's just that we have it pretty good here. But that's us. See, the meaning can't change. The theology behind it can't change. So God is told that he is good and almighty and true and just because of the persecution of the saints and prophets that looks back to the Old Testament people as well. I want you to think about Maybe a drunk driver goes out and kills someone in a car crash. Your perspective, we see this in the news today a lot. Where there's a story of a Marine in, and, uh, in, in New York, right? Your perspective on that a lot of times is shaped by who you are. So let's go with the judge. And 
The judge is hearing this case about a car accident where someone got drunk and drove and then killed someone else, right? That's, that's the thing. And, and if that person is found guilty, you find yourself as a judge in charge of the, the penalty. Now, what you think about that story is often shaped by who you are. Because if the drunk driver is your 18-year-old son, you feel differently than if the victim of the car crash is your 18-year-old daughter. See, perspective, because we're flawed, because we're finite, because we're sinful. And when I just say sinful, I don't mean we're trying to sin in the moment. I just mean because we're broken. We're not holy. We're not omniscient. We're not God. And so our perspective shifts based on how we feel about the narrative we hear. So the Bible reiterates over and over again, God, you are just for what you're, ju- what you're doing. This is justice. This is holiness. Yes, God, you're loving. You provided Jesus. You gave your only son so that no one is, has an excuse. But some choose not to. Some live this way. Some never give their lives to Jesus, and, and then they persecute the church. And so, God, you're just in pouring out judgment on those who are outside of Christ. Verse 8, and the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. We're reminded that these people don't turn because of struggles, because of problems, they don't turn to Jesus. I've encountered in, in 20-something years of leadership in the church, I've encountered two major things that took place. 9-11 was the first one. Uh, for those of you old enough and, and kind of experienced that, you remember where you were, you remember all that stuff, how it went down. We were glued to TVs, and TVs are those things we had before, smartphones, just for the young people, right? So... Uh, and then COVID, right? COVID reshaped everything. And I remember both from a leadership perspective. And I remember both from a human perspective and from a husband and from all that. But from a church leader perspective, I can tell you this. Right after 9-11 hit, uh, I was at Rock Harbor at the time, and, and we opened up the building, and we invited people to come in and pray. And, and I can tell you, those prayer nights swelled the rooms, Right? And those Sundays, successive Sundays after 9-11, the church was much larger. And it was within 30 days that kind of things settled back down into normal. Same thing, COVID hit three years ago, a little over three years ago now. And we saw as people who were fearful and struggling kind of clung to live streams and, and different things that we did. And yet, it didn't take long, a couple political decisions and off people go, Right? Sometimes people turn in that moment, and sometimes they push away. Well, how could a loving God allow 9-11? Well, where is God when so-and-so died of COVID, or so many people died of COVID? So when we see this, we, we can identify kind of those, how those people sometimes turn away, right? But again, God is just, and God is holy in what God is doing, in other words, I was looking for this. I was looking for something else, and I found this. It's Jesus speaking. It's in Luke 12. Jesus said this, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. 
Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Yes, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Yes, he calls us to be a people that are defined by love. He also says, I've come to bring division and to cast fire on the earth. But notice what he says ahead of that. I have a baptism yet to be baptized with. I have to go through the baptism of the cross and the grave to resurrect from the grave so that others can be saved. He has his own struggle. He has to endure the wrath of God for sin upon himself. This passage is saturated in gospel imagery. In the good news of Jesus, verse 10, says the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Satan receives the wrath of God and is judged. I was asked this the other day, and uh, I've said this to a lot of you, uh, is hell created yet was the question. I would say no. I would make the case, no, I wouldn't die on this hill, but I would say no, not yet. We'll talk about that when we get to a couple chapters later. But if judgment has not taken place yet, if Satan has not been sentenced yet, then the place that is created for Satan to be sentenced to is not created yet. So you can go wherever you want to with that. You can agree or disagree. It doesn't really change anything here. But the idea is that Satan is also being judged here. The Satan and all who follow him, spiritual as well as human, are being judged that God poured out wrath on Satan and his followers. And it says that people cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent. Even as God shows his power, some want nothing to do with it. In the Proverbs, in, in Proverbs 19, it says this, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Like you cause a problem and something happens, you're like, how can there be a loving God? Well, that's your pride and your, your unwillingness, your hard-heartedness. When I say you, I mean we, right? We know. For the folks in the, in the room that are part of generations that identify as in Christ, who live for Jesus, we all know we're broken. Like, we all know the flaws. We may not share them all. We may not want everybody else to know, but we know the flaws. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's beast one and beast number two from 13. Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. They're going to send them, they're going to prepare for the great battle that God is going to win. That's what I just heard, right? But it reminds us of this kind of mockery of God that Satan does, this parody of the Trinity. We call this in Revelation the unholy Trinity, the dragon, meaning Satan, the first beast, which is oppressive government, and the second beast, or the false prophet, which is false religion. And they have these three horrible things coming out of their mouths, these unholy things. The idea of these frogs, it's supposed to give you this disgusting image of a frog in your mouth. It's supposed to do that. You're welcome. That'll haunt you tonight in your sleep. So, all good. That we hear them speaking out against God and, and gearing up for a battle they can't possibly win. Now, in the midst of this, so we're seeing God judge. 
And we're seeing these kind of boils and, and these things take place on earth. And God said, this is the final thing. And we see the church anticipating it gets to walk soon into the very presence and sanctuary of God to be in God's presence eternally. As these things are being poured out, these are the steps that are taking place that they might join God physically, bodily, forever. And we see this kind of judgment on Satan, judgment on evil. And then there's this quick verse that interrupts the whole story. Verse 15, if you have a Bible with red letters, it will be read here because Jesus speaks. He says, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. There are these seven blessings in Revelation that Jesus proclaims over the church. Right, it began in chapter 1, right as we began. Blessed is the one who reads the words of these prophecy aloud. That's me. Blessing just for being here. See? That's what you get when you're a pastor. You get to cheat and take the blessings, right? Then, blessed are you who hear and who obey. Okay? Now, again, to hear and obey, blessed are you who hear and keep the words, right, or obey, means you're supposed to understand. Like the implication from the very beginning of the book is that you should understand this. This should not frighten you. This should not confuse you. It's riddled with Old Testament imagery. This is rooted right here in the Exodus. And we should be able to understand it. And Jesus says, blessed are you if you remain awake, like alert, and clothed, like prepared, that you will not be ashamed on the day of his return, which he says comes like a thief in the night. Right? Notice that we go from his ascension to him talking about the final return. Speaking to the church, remain awake and prepared. Remain alert. Remain ready. And it brings us to that, back to that place where we could pray to come, Lord Jesus, come. Like, bring the, like, we're good to bring the end unless we're not ready or those we love aren't ready. And if that's the case, then that gives us our action step. Well, then get ready and love others and share the gospel, right? Like that, there you go. He says, because no one knows. He says, I come like a thief. Thief doesn't call ahead and ask you what time you go to sleep. For obvious reasons. Like you'd get shot, right? So the idea is there's a surprise here. Like it will come when you're not expecting, so be expectant. Be alert. Be ready. See, that gospel message that reminds us that if we're in Christ, that we strive towards Jesus, that we don't, we don't spend our lives focused on this world, but we fix our eyes on Jesus, we fix our eyes on heaven, and we do the work we're called to do well here so that when Jesus returns, we're ready. And so that those we love have heard, and they have seen in our lives the affect of the gospel that they would understand what it looks like to live for Jesus. Not just somebody who lives for their job and their education, their income, five, six days a week, and then goes to church on Sundays. Not just someone who spends all their life invested in this world, but then also goes to church when available. Then we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. And it reminds us of our heavenly focus, that this earth must be destroyed, and these judgments remind us of that. So here's a note for you. Eternal judgment. Scripture speaks of eternal judgment for the benefit of those who are in Christ. It's not a warning to those who reject Jesus. They probably won't read it. Okay. It is a call to live faithfully to Jesus 
and not live focused on this world. Right? The idea here is not this supposed to scare people into salvation. Likely, they're not reading it. This is to teach the church how to be faithful witnesses as long as we live. Verse 16, and they assembled them at the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And we're going to leave Armageddon alone. It comes up again in 19 and 20. We'll spend some time on that. The seventh bowl of wrath is that final Armageddon moment. Verse 18, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake that the city the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every time you see the great earthquake in Revelation, it is the end. They go back and you catch the end of, it would be seal number six, it'd be trumpet number seven, right? Like you're getting the end of the world told from different perspectives. Like we started and said, moms, you're a mom, you're someone's daughter, maybe you're someone's sister, maybe you're a wife, whatever. These different perspectives. And this one is that final judgment on evil and wickedness that is coming to a close. And this great earthquake always symbolizes this moment, but listen to what it says, and it talks about the great city. And this can get confusing. Are we talking about like Jerusalem? What are we talking about? No. It even names it the great city Babylon. See, Babylon is this image from all the way Genesis on forward that reminds us of an immoral and corrupt world. It's the sinful way to live is Babylon, right? It's, it's living really for the pleasures and experiences of this world apart from God. That's what Babylon always symbolizes in Scripture. And so this final great earthquake splits it up, destroys it, and it says that they must drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. What a sentence. That the evil of this world must drain the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. That that is the, the ultimate destiny for Satan for all that he does here. In Matthew 26, Jesus says this, says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, we have an opportunity, a moment here, right? That God has said that you are created to live one way. We all know we live a, a different way and that that separates us. But the gospel message says, but God has come to restore that relationship. That God has sent his son, Jesus, that Jesus came in human flesh, live a sinless life, and then died vicariously, substitutionary, death for us paid our penalty. And that's what he's talking about. He's praying in the garden right before he's betrayed, right before he's beaten, right before he goes to the cross. And he's praying, God, if there's any other way than what lays ahead of me, I would prefer another way. And I want to make light of that, but I want you to see that even Jesus, who is fully God and fully human in that moment, prays a very human prayer that the suffering before him is real. That his divinity doesn't get him out of it. That he has to endure and suffer. He says, let this cup pass from me. 
See, Jesus knows that more than the beating, more than the crucifixion, more than the mocking of the soldiers and the onlookers who spit at him and jeer at him, more than that, that on the cross, when it all comes together, when that moment comes, that he's going to have to endure the wrath of God. And that God somehow separates himself from Jesus in that moment to where the presence of God changes with him for just a moment where the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus, he takes it for us. He takes the penalty for you and I. All who are in Christ, the wrath of God has been satisfied by Christ. He drank the cup, the cup that comes for everyone else in the bowl number seven, that they must drain the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. See, we have an opportunity to not be a part of that. That if you live in Christ, that you follow Jesus, that you don't have to do that. He's done that on your behalf. See, that's the gospel message. That Jesus took the wrath of God on our behalf. People, well, how do I live? How do I do that? Well, one, you, you confess your sins to God, for sure. Two, you, you clearly identify yourself and say, I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus. Right? You become a part of a local church where you can gather together with one another and grow and learn. You begin to prioritize Jesus over everything else. And, and in that, God places his spirit in you, empowers you to live. And then you live and, and you start lifting your eyes up to Jesus for as long as the rest of the time you have. And you begin to live for the kingdom that's eternal, not for the world that will be destroyed. And you begin to love others who don't know Jesus so that they might come to know Jesus. And you live a life that honors Jesus so that those others, when you have that opportunity, they get to see Jesus in you. Flawed and broken as that version may be, they can see Christ in you. For those of you that you, you know and love that don't know Jesus, they see the transformation in you. They see who you were. They see what Jesus has made out of you. Again, broken and flawed as it may be. But Jesus has taken and satisfied that penalty We'll close with these verses. It says, And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Again, this description of destruction is not to go out and try and scare literally the hell out of everybody else, but it's to remind us to stay awake and close, stay alert and prepared because Jesus has promised that his time comes as a surprise. So I want to leave you with two things. I'm going to put this on the screen. Learning scripture is not neutral. What you hear today will either soften or harden your heart. You cannot hear today and leave unchanged. You'll either be closer to God or further from God. Forgive my typos. You cannot leave unchanged. A weird spelling and a weird comma, sorry. You can't leave here unchanged. Here's Hebrews 4. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, today if you hear your voice, do not, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, here's the truth about Scripture. When you read Scripture, when you hear Scripture, when you, when you encounter the gospel message, you can't leave unchanged. You leave either drawn nearer to God or you harden your heart and walk away. 
I would ask today, may your heart be softened. May you hear these words, not as fear. You're in Christ, you should be able to pray, come Lord Jesus, come. May it encourage you to draw near to Jesus. May it remind you that we lift our eyes up out of this world and we live for forever. We live for eternity starting now. Eternity started. It will be fully consummated when all of evil is judged. When this world is renewed, when our bodies are transformed, when Satan is removed. Let that soften your hearts. Let the justice and the goodness and the holiness of a loving God soften your hearts today. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You have come that we might have life. You have paved a way to God and have called all. The message goes out to all. All people, all tongues, all tribes, all nations, all of history. You are the God who created. You are the God who saves. And you are the God who will redeem and restore. So Jesus, draw your people to you. That we may walk in you and enjoy you and learn how to live for you in this world. That our lives would be better and greater for living for you and that others may see you in our lives. We know that God loves us because while we were still enemies of God, Jesus, you came and gave your life for us. So let us turn and give our lives for you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Generations Church, as we do.